Hey gang, here we are. It's getting closer. The special day is getting closer to Christmas. Got my new hat today. See that? All festive and shiny. Welcome. And uh, let me see if I can get this real. I see I've been like I've been fussing with this all day trying to get this thing where here we go. Where I wanted it. So welcome. We're gonna read Mrs. Miracle. And uh it's funny because I have another event to do at seven o'clock today, so this is why we're on an uh, hour earlier than usual. So let me pull up Mrs. Miracle, my tablet, so we can read. Have a little bit of water. Merry Christmas. Actually, the appropriate thing, I guess, is Happy Holidays. For everybody. Merry Christmas for some. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays for others. Whatever's politically correct. I'm going to go ahead and run the banner to you today. The California House banner is on. Okay. So welcome to today's reading. Uh, we're going to continue this next week, too. Uh, quick announcement. Christmas Eve, I'm going to also do a reading. I got, I got like two or three special things I want to read on Christmas Eve. Let me call this up. I wish we right for something. So on Christmas Eve, I'm going to do two or three special little things to read that night to you guys. But here we are. We are reading Mrs. Miracle. I believe we're near chapter 10. We may be further along. I'm waiting for it to come up. We're in chapter 11 of Mrs. Miracle. I don't know how many chapters we're dealing with, but we're going to keep reading until we finish the book. We're 33% through, according to this. So we're going to keep reading until we finish the book. And then we can take a poll after all this is over to see if Maybe we want to continue these readings afterwards and we'll pick another, just a regular fiction type of book. Or maybe even read a paranormal book, like something like The Ghost of Flight 401 or something like that, that we could read. But anyway, here we go. Um, this is Mrs. Miracle. It's 501. And away we go. Ah. The blue dress. No, the red one. Reba couldn't decide. Both were festive. One in silk, the other in a lightweight wool. She tried, she tried on the two outfits at least a dozen times. Those dresses and everything else inside her closet, including a couple of items left over from her college days. That wasn't an ordinary this this wasn't an ordinary dinner date. This was an uh, this was an evening to be spent with Seth Webster. She closed her eyes and cradled her arms around her middle, breathing in deeply as she contemplated what was in store for her. Disillusionment, no doubt, Reba decided. She set herself up for a major disappointment and knew it. Brad Pitt himself couldn't live up to the fantasy she created in her mind with Seth. He was her dream man. Why did she pick him out of all the men she saw in the strip mall parking lot? She couldn't even begin to guess. Theories had bounced around her mind all week, and she, just, and she dissected and examined them until she couldn't think straight any longer. She'd worried and stewed over this one date more than she had over her, uh, over her high school prom. She wanted everything to be perfect. Her dress, her hair, her attitude. For one night, one short period of time, she longed to place she longed to place the hurts of the past behind her, forget that the two people she loved most in the world had betrayed her. Forget that this one act had colored the way she she looked at old relationships since. For this one night, she wanted to pretend her heart hadn't been stricken. That she was footloose and carefree. That she was capable of dreaming again and having those dreams come true. The doorbell chimed, panic set in, and Reba glanced at her watch 
as her heart bounded to her throat like a bouncing basketball. It had to be Seth. Not so soon. Not old, not so soon. Not already. She calmed herself, then opened the front door and let him inside her home. If she'd gone to trouble to look her best, and she had, then Seth had too. His hair was freshly cut, she noticed, and he donned a crisp-looking business suit. You didn't say where we were dining, she commented as he helped her on with her coat. I didn't know, he admitted and chuckled. I ended up getting a couple of suggestions from my housekeeper. She made the reservations. I hope you like Thai food. If not, it's my favorite. It had been months since she'd eaten at a Thai restaurant, and it sounded perfect. Absolutely perfect. Although they were both a bit nervous at first, the uneasiness soon disappeared, and as Seth drove to the restaurant, they chatted like longtime friends. Rarely had Reba felt more at ease with a man, especially when she barely knew. I understand you met the twins, he commented. My twins, Judd and Jason. Wednesday night, her first night working with the children for Christmas pageant. Jason is actually glad to play the role of an angel. The two boys struggle to be different from each other, seek their own identity. Reba grinned. The six-year-old's animated face had sprung to life with the light. Judd wasn't nearly as keen on the idea, she said, hiding a smile. It's been easy to read the fruit. It had been easy to read the first grader's thoughts. He'd wanted to play a Roman soldier and carry a spear and shield. Instead, he'd be flapping a pair of aluminum wings and, and a tinsel-wrapped halo. To be fair, she didn't blame the lad, but the older boys had dibs on the more masculine roles. He's adjusting, said the sure her. He looked away from the road long enough to smile at her. That's quite a project you've taken on. She was only beginning to understand how large the task was going to be. Practice went well, and several adults volunteered to lend a hand. I'll help you too if you find I need if you find you need it. Thanks. I just might take you up on that. The inside of the car was warm and cozy, warm and intimate, comfortable in a way that was foreign to her. Since breaking her engagement with John, Reba had felt uneasy with men. Oh, she dated, but she never allowed a relationship to grow serious. Generally, after a few times out, she found a convenient excuse to call it quits. Counseling probably would probably huh, counseling probably would have helped her face her fears. But in seeking professional assistance, she'd have to confront far more than her reluctance to enter into another relationship. A trained professional would soon root out the heart of the matter, and she'd be forced to peel back the wound of betrayal and talk about what had happened with John and Vicky. Reba couldn't bear it. Not with a stranger. Not with anyone. She wanted to think it would be different with Seth, but it was too soon to know. The restaurant was perfect. Romantic, exotic, fun. They removed their shoes and were seated at a low-lying table. The seats padded with large satin pillows propped up against the wall. The waitress, a beautiful, unbelievably small Asian woman, filled the gold-edged china cups with fragrant tea and left them to read over the menu. Everything looks wonderful. I'm partial to anything with peanut sauce, Seth said. Me too. Their eyes met and held, and some unfathomable emotions flickered between them, as though this one small detail were crammed with incredible meaning. Reba discovered her appreciation of Thai food wasn't the only thing that they had in common. With every subject introduced, they uncovered a link in one form or another. For years, she had been a Seahawks fan. Seth loved football, too. She adored Steve Martini courtroom dramas. Seth had devoured everyone in his books and considered him as fine a writer as Grisham. She collected stamps and had from the time she was in high school. Seth's collection dated back to his grandfather. 
Reba barely noticed when the food, their food arrived. Although every bite was delicious, she found it to be something of a distraction. She could have talked to him all night. This is almost spooky, she said, as she piled steaming rice onto her plate. The next thing I know, you're going to tell me that you play the piano as well. She'd taken lessons for six years and loved to sit down, even now, and pound out her favorite song. I do, his eyes crinkled with silent laughter. Then abruptly it faded. Or, did, or I did it one time, years ago. I haven't touched the piano in quite some time. This last bit was mumbled almost as if he didn't want her to hear. It's easy to get out of practice. I haven't played since Pam died. He watched her as he spoke, as if he expected her to tell him it was pointless to deny himself that one small pleasure to she didn't. People don't understand why, most people, he amended. You don't need to explain it to me. I want to, he said, his eyes solemn. I suspect I need to. His shoulders tightened as he leaned against the pillows, and he paused as though needing time to formulate his thoughts. The piano was something we shared. Pamela loved to hear me play. She loved music. She'd lie down and close her eyes, and I can't explain it, not with words. It sounds humdrum almost silly. After I buried her, I couldn't look at the piano any longer. Playing it again was intolerable, and soon after the funeral, I sold it. Having it out of the house was a relief. Over time, a lot of people have tried to convince me to play again, but I have no desire to do so. His gaze held hers. I suspect it sounds theatrical, perhaps a bit hysterical. It doesn't. Reba rushed to tell him wanting to assure him that his actions made sense, at least to her. She leaned forward and pressed her hand over his. I understand, Seth. And she did, more than he realized, more than he'd ever know. He'd given up his music because that part of himself, this one fiber of his life, was interwoven with his memories of his young wife. To sit down and run his fingers over those ivory keys again would be reliving those times he treasured with Pamela. The joy he once experienced with music would now produce only pain. Thank you, he whispered for an awkward moment, for not lecturing me, for not attempting to reason with me. It's been four years. Four years. The rest of his words faded away. Another coincidence, another irony. It's been four years since she'd broken off her engagement with John, since she'd last talked to her and had anything to do with her sister. Four long years. The evening took a turn toward the somber following the discussion about music, but even that didn't dim the sense of discovery she experienced. Seth drove her home, and while they didn't speak, the silence was warm and friendly. It was as though each one needed to absorb what had happened, absorb the second chance they'd been unexpectedly handed, afraid to consider anything more than this one dinner together. I'll see you on Sunday at church, won't I? Seth asked, and he walked her towards the, as he walked her towards the front door. Of course! I'm going to sit in with the children during Sunday school. I'm a stranger to most of them, and my chances of a successful Christmas program will increase the sooner they're more familiar with me. Afterward, how about dinner with me and the boys? Mrs. Miracle is a fabulous cook. Reba was amused by the children's pet name for the housekeeper, Mrs. Miracle. It felt as though a miracle had happened in her life already, just meeting Seth. She wondered if he'd kiss her and was amazed by how much she wanted him to. The house was dark, the porch light dim, encouraging, and she longed for the feel of Seth's arms, hungered for the comfort she, she instinctively recognized she'd find in his embrace. When he did take her gently in his arms, she experienced that and much more. Seth's kiss was sweet and undemanding, 
slowly, as though he wasn't sure he was doing the right thing. His lips found hers. His touch was tentative, light yet tender, and pure soul at once, as if he too were dealing with an abundance of frightening emotions. Exploring them, she suspected, was as scary for him as it was for her. Perhaps more so, since he'd been married. When he lifted his head from hers, she sighed softly, then wrapped her arms around his middle and braced her forehead against his shoulder. I wasn't sure if kissing you was the thing to do. I'm glad you did, she whispered. Me too. He stroked her hair, his fingers tangling with the short, soft curls. You'll come to the house after church for dinner with me and the kids? Yes. Her voice was barely audible. Good. He tilted her head upward to meet his descending mouth and kissed her again. Hunger mingled with the gentleness, and this time they ended the contact with a heady reluctance. Once more, Reba hit her face in his shoulder and inhaled deeply, seeking to find her equilibrium. I'd better get back. She nodded. Dinner was wonderful. I thought so, too. He, he retreated two steps. She raised her hand and wiggled her fingertips. Good night, she said, as though everything were normal, when in fact it wasn't. She wasn't. Many years earlier, while visiting her grandmother in California, a six-year-old Reba had been awakened by a violent earthquake. The experience, she had been, the experience had been traumatic. She clung to her grandmother, shaken both emotionally and physically. One day with Seth, and Reba felt six years old all over again. All because of Seth's kisses. She felt renewed, reawakened, alive, and frightened. Terribly frightened. So much so that she was trembling almost uncontrollably by the time she walked inside her home. Not turning on the light, she moved into her living room and sank onto the sofa. The darkness closed in around her, hiding her, letting her hide from what she wasn't sure, herself, her feelings, the future. The future. She wondered if she dared trust another man again, exposed herself to another bout of pain. Gradually, a smile came into place. Seth wouldn't hurt her, not when he'd been so deeply hurt himself. Her heart was safe with Seth Webster. Of that, she was confident, safe and secure. Daddy, wake up. Judd bounced onto Seth's bed with all the energy of a St. Bernard puppy. Seth longed to bury his head beneath his pillow and possibly would have if Jason hadn't hurled himself onto the bed after his brother. Whatever chance he had of returning to sleep was forever lost. This was what he got for letting the kids crawl in bed with him on weekends. Is Miss Maxwell going to be our new mommy? Ah, uh, Seth groaned. He needed coffee and a shower before facing an inquisition from his two children. The word mommy implied marriage, and he wasn't anywhere close to considering a step that drastic. Sure, he'd enjoyed Reba's company, but that was a hell of a long way from taking the proverbial plunge into matrimony. The mere word put the fear of God to him. Mrs. Miracle showed us Mommy's pictures last night, Jason announced. Seth's head reared back with a shocked surprise. He didn't keep out any pictures of Pamela. Like the piano, they'd all been removed and stored carefully in the attic. It had been a rash thing to do, perhaps even unreasonable, but at the time, it just seemed necessary. One evening, several weeks after he'd sent the boys to live with their grandparents, Seth had gone on a rampage through the house, collecting every snapshot, every photograph he could lay his hands on. His shoulders had shaken with emotion as he gathered them together. Sometime later, he tucked them away in the storage space in the attic. No longer would he be blindsided by the pain. It wasn't until much later that Seth realized that out of sight didn't mean out of mind. 
Pamela's picture didn't rest on the piano any longer, but she was with him. Every time he walked in the house, she was there to greet him, to welcome him, to tell him she was pleased he was home. Not with words, naturally, but with memories. After time, when the pain of losing her wasn't as sharp, he found comfort in those small remembrances. At his loneliest moments, he sat in the living room and wrapped them around himself in the way one did a winter coat in the dead of a snowstorm. He closed his eyes and pretended. Imagination was a powerful thing, and it didn't take more than a small dose to conjure what his life would have been like had Pamela lived. Even with the solace he'd received from those visions, he'd never crawl back into that attic and retrieve the pictures. I'd almost forgotten what Mommy looked like, Jason said, until Mrs. Miracle gave me the photograph. Which photograph, said demanded. Seth demanded, and Jason flinched with surprise. He didn't mean to shout. His anger was cer- his anger certainly wasn't directed at them. The incident with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was one thing. But Pamela's picture was another in a long list of the unexplainable. The one in my room, Jason answered. I'll get it. He was gone in an instant, flying off the bed with an agility of speed reserved for children. Before Seth could think to call him back, he returned, holding an 8x10-inch frame against his chest. This one, he announced. The photograph was of Pam soon after the birth of the twins, the very one he loved the most. Pamela radiantly happy, a newborn infant on each arm, smiling at him, smiling at the camera. Seth was furious, so angry, he couldn't speak. What's wrong, Daddy? Judd asked, cocking his head to get a better look at his father. I need to talk to Mrs. Miracle. Mrs. Merkel. She's in the kitchen. Seth climbed out of bed and reached for his robe. As he walked past Jason, he took the picture frame out of his hands. Where did you get this, he demanded, before he was all the way in the kitchen? Mrs. Merkel was standing at the kitchen counter, stirring eggs. She looked up at him, her eyes wide. I beg your pardon? This photograph of my wife, where did you get it? Oh, Mr. Webster, I do hope you don't mind. The children were filled with questions about their mother. I assume it has something to do with you going out with Miss Maxwell and all. Where did you get this picture? He repeated between her teeth. Yes, well, she hesitated and dried her hands on her apron. I found it in the bookcase when I dusted the other morning. Someone had stuck it in between two volumes. Apparently, it's been there for some time. Of course, I wasn't sure it was your wife. But with the babies in, in her arms, I felt it must have been. Judd has her eyes. Seth's gaze traveled to his son, and he recognized that what the older woman said was true. Judd's dark brown eyes were the precise shape and color Pamela's had been. Funny he'd never noticed that before. In the bookcase, you say? I apologize if I did something I shouldn't have done. She certainly looked contrite. I bought the frame the other day. It seems to go rather nicely, don't you think? Seth sighed. He hadn't meant to make a federal case out of a silly thing like a photograph. Although he'd been in the bookcase himself more times than he could count, he could easily have overlooked the picture. Who was to know how it came to be there in the first place? Perhaps Pamela stuck it there herself. Perhaps he'd been the one to do it. Not that it mattered. Mommy had brown eyes like me, too, didn't she? Jason asked, looking at him expectantly. Yes, partner. Well, my new mommy? It was all Seth could do to keep from groaning aloud. He looked at Mrs. Merkel to rescue him, but she was back stirring eggs, humming softly to herself. Dad? Judd pulled at his sleeve. Will she? He squatted down so that his gaze was level with that of his children. There isn't going to be another mommy, kids. They both looked stunned. He might as well have announced there was no such thing as Santa Claus from the shock he read on their expressive faces. But Mrs. Miracle said there would be. Irritated, Seth shot a glass toward his housekeeper. 
but she was busy with breakfast and either didn't hear or was pretending not to. He wasn't about to have the woman tell he was about to have the woman telling the children something like that. When he had a private moment, he mentioned it to her. I even drew my new mommy's picture, Jed told him. The lad raced out of the kitchen and was back a few moments later with a crayon drawing. Seth barely glanced at it and wouldn't have even given it a second notice if it wasn't for the two small matters. The woman, Judge Pictured, had short curly hair and was wearing a shiny red dress. Reva's hair was short and curly, and she'd been wearing a bright red dress. Coincidence? Pure coincidence. She's real pretty, isn't she? Judd asked, proud of his efforts. She sure is, Seth muttered, with no real enthusiasm. You like Mrs. You like Miss Maxwell, don't you? This came from Jason. Yes, he admitted. But that doesn't mean I'm going to marry her. Both of his children had that same woe-begone look of bitter disappointment. You'll look for a new mommy, won't you? Look for someone with brown eyes and curly hair and a red dress, Judd advised, and waved the picture under his nose once more. Seth was saved from having to answer when the housekeeper called him to breakfast. He bided his time and waited until after breakfast before he confronted Mrs. Red, Mrs. Merkel. It didn't take a genius to figure out where the children were getting the notion that he was about to remarry, and he wouldn't have it. Do you have a moment? He asked her, as he carried the dirty dishes from the table of the sink. Of course. Ill at ease and disliking confrontation, he hesitated. I was wondering if you'd said anything to the children about me remarrying. She didn't answer him right away, which was an answer in herself. I don't mean to complain, he continued. The kids call you Mrs. Miracle, and frankly, I've come to think of you that way. I don't know what we would have done without you, but I'd prefer it if you didn't fill the children's heads with this talk about another mother. So you don't plan to remarry? She looked as she looks as disappointed as the children. No, he returned emphatically. If his words discouraged her, it didn't last long. Her eyes rounded with a hint of mischief. Not ever, Mr. Webster. Forever is a long, long time. Not ever, he assured her, raising his voice slightly. She laughed once, shortly, as if his answer had amused her and she wasn't able to contain it. Time will tell, won't it? Time most certainly will. He turned and stalked out of the kitchen and into the garage. He opened his car door before he realized he still had on his pajamas and robe, not to mention that this was Saturday morning. Mrs. Merkel left the house an hour later, as Seth was alone with the children. Although he was grateful to have a housekeeper, he couldn't help but being curious about Emily Merkel. She certainly had a way about her. She'd taken his restless-spirited children under her wing and within a matter of days had made a marked difference in their behavior and attitude. Now, since her arrival had he received a call from the school or a note from their teacher. He found it curious, however, the way she'd arrived without notice. It was almost as if she'd descended from the clouds using an umbrella as a parachute. Not that she resembled Mary Poppins. No, he definitely viewed her as a mother goose. Once he'd showered and shaved, Seth moved into his den. It certainly wouldn't hurt to contact the employment agency and make a few inquiries about her. It wouldn't hurt to check on her references either. Luckily, the agency was staffed on Saturday. Hello, this is Seth Webster, he said when Mrs. Ackerman's agency owner answered herself. Oh, Mr. Webster, I'm so very sorry. I can't imagine what you must think of me. Mrs. Ackerman? Seth couldn't fathom why she should apologize. Yes, yes, I realize that you've been waiting several weeks to hear back from me. I can't imagine how you managed all this time. I don't believe I understand. A housekeeper. You do still need one, don't you? Ah, Seth was too stunned to respond. I want you to know that I've made inquiries each and every day, but a full-time housekeeper willing to live in and care for two small children, why, 
they're few and far between these days. But not to mention the fact that you've gone through every domestic I have in short order. What about Emily Merkel? She asked. Didn't you send her? Emily Merkel. You can hear the rustle of papers in the background. We don't have anyone by that name listed here. Let me check the computer data file. He waited a moment. The sound of the fingers typing against the computer keys echoed over the telephone line. I'm afraid we don't have anyone by that name listed with the agency. Are you sure her name is Merkel? Yes. All of a sudden, Sip was sure of nothing. Exactly who was this woman who insinuated herself into his and his children's lives? It was her responsibility as a chapter 13. It was her responsibility as a Christian, Harriet Foster determined, as an upstanding member of the church, it was her duty to talk with Pastor Livelist about what was happening between Ruth Darling and Lyle Fawcett. Even though Harriet played the organ for the 11 o'clock worship service, she had, she had eyes in her head. She could see what was happening. Ruth Darling was flirting with, with sin, and the worst part of it was that she did so right inside the house of God. Why, a blind man could see that Ruth was making eyes at Lyle Fawcett. Harriet was worried about Ruth. That was what. That was it. Worried she start off by telling Pastor Loveless how very concerned she was over her dear, dear friend's recent behavior. Her words couldn't be misconstrued as gossip in that case. This had been a matter of prayer for a good while, and she felt the need to share her burden. Harriet checked her reflection in the car window to be sure that her hat was fast securely to her head before she approached the church. She had a perfect excuse for being there on a Saturday. Not that she ever really needed a reason. Not only was she playing the piano for the Christmas program, the children were due to arrive in another hour, but it took an hour or more at the organ to, familiar, to familiarize herself with the music for the Sunday morning worship service. It did feel as though the church took advantage of her musical talents. When Harriet talked to Pastor Loveless, she'd be sure to mention how much of her valuable time she'd sacrificed for the church's benefit. Suddenly, of course, she didn't want him to think she was overly burdened or that she didn't enjoy being a slave for God's work. Walking in from the parking lot, she clenched her purse against her side and strolled purposefully past the pastor's office. The door was closed, and she sighed with disappointment. She'd hoped the office door would be open and she could stick her head inside and say hello. She hesitated, worrying if she should knock, then decided against it. She'd much rather that her discussion appeared spontaneous and nothing that she'd planned beforehand. As it was, she'd carefully gone over exactly what she would say, after which she'd leave the touching matter in his capable hands. Surely Pastor Loveless would recognize what was happening and take decisive action. No man of God could allow this kind of behavior to continue within his own church. Lyle Fawcett was a gentleman, a recent widow herself. He needed gentle concern, someone who could appreciate his grief, a woman who had taken upon herself to see his comfort. He needed someone like her, Harriet reasoned. She lost her life's mate and could well appreciate Lyle's grief. What he didn't need was Ruth Darling hovering over him, making a nuisance of herself. As the Bible leader for the Martha and Mary circle, Ruth had other responsibilities. More important, Ruth had a husband. Apparently, Fred Darling didn't even see what was going on right under his nose. He would never put up with his wife's blatant behavior if he did. Harriet would have thought better of the man. But then, as was so often the case, the spouse was the last to know. Men in particular were blind when it suited their purposes. To Harriet's way of thinking, Fred was acting like an ostrich with his head buried in the sand. 
She almost felt sorry for the poor soul. Feeling thwarted and more than a little disappointed, Harriet headed for the sanctuary. She played the organ as if luck was with her, and if luck was with her, Pastor Loveless would hear the soothing sounds of her music and make himself available. It wasn't uncommon for him to enter the sanctuary when she played or to make the last minute changes in the music. Harriet was just inside the vestibule when she heard Pastor Loveless's door open. She whirled around, delighted. Pastor, she greeted him warmly, excitedly. How are you this fine day? He was a young man in his early 30s and wise for his years. Kind-hearted and generous, Pastor Lovelace made himself available to the people of his congregation, a good shepherd. Mrs. Foster, he smiled, looking a bit uncomfortable. I thought I heard someone. You did, she said, speaking the obvious. Me. I'm, uh, I'm here to play the piano for practice and with the children. The Christmas program is coming along nicely, even if I say so myself. She was about to remind him that she had been the one responsible for the finding for finding a replacement for Millie Waters. Actually, she'd volunteered Jane. But her niece had suggested Reba Maxwell. And that had worked out beautifully. It went without saying that if Harriet hadn't stepped in when she had, the entire Christmas program might have been canceled. More and more, it was becoming clear to her that she was not appreciated the way she should be. If it wasn't for her efforts, there was no telling what would happen to the church. Pastor Love was glad to watch. I didn't think practice with the children was for another hour. It isn't. I'm here to rehearse for the worship service. She looked pointedly at her hands. With my arthritis, as bad as it is, it's a wonder I can still play at all. We do appreciate your efforts, Mrs. Foster. But if ever you feel that you can't continue, then... No, no, I'm fine. Of course there's a bit of a pain. Of course there's a bit of a pain. But then I'm accustomed to it. She smiled bravely and Pastor Loveless patted her shoulder in that caring, gentle way of his. He started to retreat back into his office. Pastor, she said quickly, it's, fortu it's fortuitous that we should meet like this. Since there's a matter, a rather delicate one, I feel he's discussing. It has to do with one of the women of the church, a married woman, she added pointedly. I'm afraid I have an appointment, Mrs. Foster. This should only take a few moments, and it's important. I feel terrible to be the one to bring this news. Unfortunate situation to your nose. But someone must. Perhaps we could talk later. If I don't say this now, I might never have the courage again. Harriet planted her hand over her heart, as if speaking the words pain her. It has to do with... Ruth Darling's name never came to her lips. Just then, with impeccable timing, the church door opened, and the very woman herself strolled inside. Harriet almost swallowed her tongue. Ruth hesitated and smiled and nodded. Hello, Harriet. Ruth, the name fell stiffly from her lips. Perhaps we could talk another time, Pastor Lovell suggested, directing the comment to Harriet. Of course, she murmured, and turned away, but not before she saw Ruth enter Pastor Lovelace's study. Whatever the other woman had come to discuss required an appointment. The subject was plainly serious. Harriet had seen it coming. The darling marriage, after 40 years or longer, was in deep trouble. Rightly so, with Ruth making goo-goo eyes at Lyle Fawcett. Chapter 14 Humming to herself, Sharon Palmer read over the recipe and assembled the necessary ingredients. She was tired of tossing and turning the night away in the guest bedroom, tired of pretending she enjoyed sleeping apart from her husband. The chocolate chip cookies, his favorite, were a peace offering, a subtle one, a means of telling him she was sorry, that she regretted this whole business and wanted it to end. Jerry had left earlier that morning to play a round of golf with his friends, other retirees. 
The way Sharon figured, the cookies would be warm from the oven by the time he returned. Warm and gooey, just the way he liked them best. Then perhaps they could sit down and talk. Really talk. They hadn't communicated in months. Not the way they should for a couple married close to 40 years. As she added the chocolate chips and walnuts to the dough, she smiled, pleased with this recent decision to work out the bums in her marriage. They were both strong-willed and stubborn. Both old fools. Jerry wanted to take a trip to the Panama Canal. There would be other cruises, other vacations, and next time she could choose when and where. It was silly for them both to be so unreasonable with one another. Perhaps, if she gave in on this, Jerry would see his way clear to flying to Seattle with her to visit the grandkids over Christmas. If she allowed her willingness to compromise, he would too. Jerry was a fair man. She hadn't been married to him all those years without knowing that. The first sheet of cookies were cooling when her husband walked into the door. If he noticed the scent of the freshly baked cookies, he said nothing. It had been a good long while since he last baked, and she last baked. This was a rare treat. He ignored her and opened the refrigerator door, glaring inside as if seeking buried treasure. Do you want a cookie? she asked, playing it cool. The last few days, the tension between them had been as thick as glue. Did you put nuts in them? he asked. Walnuts, his favorite. I don't like walnuts, he said, bringing out a bowl of leftover spaghetti. Since when? she demanded. He'd been eating her chocolate chip cookies like walnuts for years and never said a word before now. Since I was a kid, he said. He set a spaghetti on the counter and reached for the plate. You always ate walnuts before. Yeah, I didn't like it. Sharon planted her mick-covered hand on her hip. Did you mean to tell me that it took you 40 years to tell me you don't like walnuts? She didn't believe it, not for a moment. He was being deliberately argumentative, deliberately unappreciative. It took me 40 years longer than it should have, he snapped. He slapped a glove of spaghetti on the plate and stuck it inside the microwave. He punched a few buttons and glared back at her. The sound of the microwave and the product in process whirled through the kitchen as it warmed his lunch. Sharon had been had principally waited to eat so that she could sit down and join him, but her appetite had vanished, replaced by a sick feeling in the pit of her stomach. Is there anything else you don't like that you haven't mentioned, she asked. Plenty. I prefer spaghetti with meatballs instead of the meat all crumbled up in with a sauce. Sharon had made her spaghetti from the same recipe all these years, and not once had he said one word about preferring meatballs. He must have seen the stricken look on her face, because he added, You asked, didn't you? The oven timer beeped. Sharon had no defense, and rather than answer him, she removed the last cookie sheet from the oven. She stared at the perfectly shaped cookies, with the chocolate chips bright and melting. After only a few minutes' hesitation, she dumped them straight into the garbage. What'd you do that for, Jerry demanded, irritation raising, raising his voice half an octave. You don't like the walnuts, she reminded him, doing her best to keep the hurt out of her voice. I'd hate to force you to eat something not to your liking. The microwave beeped, and Jerry grabbed the plate before she had a chance to take, a, take that away from him as well. What's wrong with you, he demanded. His gaze narrowed as he studied her intently. Did you take your hormones this morning? Forty years and not once did you tell me you don't like walnuts. The words were an accusation of all that was wrong with their marriage. I don't hate them, he argued. He walked over to the kitchen cabinet where she kept her medication, removed the bottle, and shook it before putting it back. Maybe that's what the problem is. The only problem I have is you, Jerry Palmer. His eyes rounded as, as he slapped his hand over his heart. You think I'm your problem? Sweetheart, you'd better take a look in the mirror. If there's problems in this family, I'm not the one. If you don't like the way I cook, maybe you should do your own cooking, she challenged. 
Maybe I should, Jerry countered. I've cooked my own breakfast all week. Great, now you can try your hand at lunch and dinner as well. No problem. Sharon slammed the mitt down on the counter. I'm sure it won't be. She stalked past him and made her way to the guest bedroom. Sitting at the end of the twin mattress, she intertwined her fingers in an attempt to steal the trembling in her hand. She wasn't a woman who often succumbed to tears, but they blurred her eyes now. Tilting her head back, she blinked furiously, refusing to let them fall, refusing to allow her pain to roll free. She was emotion she was she was emotionally strong one in the family. Not until Pamela was dead did she realize how strong. When they'd heard the terrible news, Jerry had withdrawn behind a brick wall of pain, unwilling and perhaps afraid to reveal his anguish. Seth had been in shock, blinded by the grief and fear of what would happen to him and the children without Pamela. So everyone had turned to her. She was the one who had to make the funeral arrangements. She was the one others had turned to for comfort and help. She was emotionally strong, calm, a pillar on which others could lean. The base of that pillar was crumbling now. Sharon realized and threatening to collapse. The knot blocking her throat felt as big as a watermelon. She started out her day with such good intentions, hoping to bridge the gap between her and Jerry, but he wanted none of it. She lay on the bed, pulled a blanket over her shoulders, and stared at the wall. Forty years and she never knew Jerry didn't like walnuts. Forty years was a hell of a long time to live with a man and never know he liked the spaghetti with meatballs. Sometime later, Sharon heard a sound, but she didn't move her gaze away from the wall to investigate. Dang it, Sharon, since Dang it, Sharon, say something. She could picture Jerry framed in the doorway, but she hadn't the strength or the will to pull her attention away from the blank wall. I'm talking to you, he said again. She heard all she wanted to, to from him, more than she needed to know. The hell with you then, Jerry muttered and stalked away. Forty years she'd invested in this marriage, in this man. She kept his home born, she kept his home, born him children, molded her life to fit his, forty years and they could barely tolerate one another. To hell with her, then Jerry had said. That was exactly where she felt she was, hell. Seth had never intended to stay for the Christmas program practice. He thought to drop the boys off at the church and head home to catch up on some job-related readings. Besides, he wanted to be there when Mrs. Merkel returned. They had several matters to discuss. His head had been spinning ever since his conversation with Mrs. Ackerman. If the employment agency hadn't sent Mrs. Merkel, who had? He proposed to find out at the earliest opportunity. The twins were excited about their part in the Christmas pageant, and he had chatted like and had chatted like magpies during the short drive to the church. When he arrived, Seth had impossibly decided to park and go inside. He stayed just long enough to say hello to Reba, thank her for their dinner date, and be on his way. That's what he told himself he'd do. But the minute he'd entered the room, he felt compelled to sit back and watch Reba manage the children. For a single woman with limited experience working with kids, she did a masterful job. Two or three other women were there to lend a hand, but it was Reba who was in charge. The practice started out with all the children grouped together. Mrs. Foster was there as well, tight-lipped and looking miserable, as she banged away on the piano keys without much finesse. He grimaced a couple of times at her basic lack of talent. To the best of his memory, Seth had never seen the older woman smile. Half the time, she looked as if she'd been sucking on something bitter. The children, while familiar with the song, gave it a half-hearted effort. The voices blended nicely, but from the back of the room, Seth couldn't understand the words. Reba's shoulders sagged, 
and she said something that made everyone laugh. The next attempt was much better. A few minutes later, she broke the group into three sections to rehearse their individual roles. Seth decided to wait until Judd and Jason came on the scene. Judd may, Judd may have been assigned to the role of an angel, but he was, but he burst onto the stage with the shepherds watching over their sheep, like Rambo in Town Revenge. All he needed was a submachine gun for a prop. Jason followed and growled like a lion. Reba handled the situation well, reminding his six-year-old sons that they weren't there to frighten anyone. Their mission, if they chose to accept it, was to tell the shepherds wonderful, exciting news. Judd and Jason smiled and nodded. The boy's second attempt was much better. Judd's voice bellowed out loud and clear as he shared the wondrous news. Before Seth realized it, the hour was gone. The twins raced to his side the minute they finished. Seth waited until most of the other kids were gone before he approached Reba. He felt a bit awkward hiding in the back of the room that way, but he had derived a good deal of pleasure just watching her. He was afraid that he'd built up the date in his mind, made more of it than he should have. But as he moved toward her, he realized, if anything, he discounted his attraction for her. Reba was patient and kind. Her rapport with the kids had been instantaneous. And he hadn't been able to take his eyes off her for the entire hour. He wasn't succeeding now, either. It looks like everything's going great, he commented, understanding what he should have been obvious. She sank onto a chair and rubbed her hand along with the back of her neck. You know, you think so? You got the entire program organized. I can't take the credit for that. Lily Waters worked with me. I'm just following her example. Judd sank onto the floor next to her, staring up at her as if memorizing her features. She looks just like the lady in my picture, he announced with childlike enthusiasm. Judd, Seth warned in a whisper. If his son embarrassed him by suggesting he marry Reba, he didn't know what he'd do. Not exactly like the lady, but real close, Jason said, before Seth had a chance to quiet him. It's time to go, he stated, with an eagerness that bordered on panic. The twins and Reba, get adjusted here, the twins and Reba looked sad and at surprised by his abrupt announcement. Not so soon, Dad. What picture? Reba looked, asked, looking from Judd and Jason. It's nothing, Seth said, wanting to be on his way before the twins embarrassed him further. Judd drew a picture of a woman with short hair and a red dress, Jason explained, when it became obvious his father wasn't going to explain. The woman in my drawing looks a lot like you, Judd said, his eyes bright and eager. Seth urged both his children toward the door. I'll see you tomorrow, then, he said, hoping against hope to make a clean getaway. Tomorrow? Jason perked up instantly. Mrs. Maxwell is coming to the house for dinner, he explained. Or Miss Maxwell is coming to the house for dinner, he explained and remembered that he hadn't said anything to Mrs. Miracle about inviting company. Goodbye, Miss Maxwell. Goodbye, everyone. Seth heaved a sigh of relief as they headed toward the door. She does look like the lady in Judd's picture, Jason said, and slipped a small hand into his. He seemed to be waiting for Seth to respond. A little, he, he admitted reluctantly. Jason looked over his shoulder and sighed expressively before calling out in a loud voice, I hope you do marry my dad. I beg your pardon, Reba said. My dad, Judd shouted. We hope we hope you marry him. Chapter 15 The phone pealed just as Reba started out the door. Sunday morning for church. She was tempted not to answer, afraid it would be her mother. She hesitated and quickly crossed the room and reached for the receiver. It might be important. It might be Seth. Hello? 
Reba, sweetheart, I wondered if you'd be up and about. Her mother, her mother, Reba gritted her teeth. She knew it would be more of this Christmas business, and she didn't want to discuss it again. Her mind was made up, and all the talk in the world wouldn't make her change it. Hello, Mom, she said without any real enthusiasm. Listen, I'm on, I'm on my way out the door for church. Church, John Maxwell's voice swelled with approval. You've got a couple of moments to spare for your mother, don't you? Reba wasn't given the chance to say no. You remember Betty Gleason, don't you? Reba didn't. Impatiently, she glanced at her watch. She was being Seth and didn't want to be late. No, Mom, I'm afraid I don't. I attended the early church service and met up with Betty. She and Ernie were in this fancy Thai restaurant in Federal Way, and she thought she saw you with a nice-looking young man. Reba swore her mother had informants, who routinely reported her activities. That was Seth Webster, she said, making sure none of her feelings for the aeronautical engineer blend your voice. It would be just like her mother to make more of this dinner date than there really was. Seth Webster, John Maxwell repeated the name, repeated the name slowly, as if saying out loud, magic, uh, saying it aloud, magically released the information she craved. Have you known him long, Mother? I'm going to be late for lunch. I'm church. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you meeting Seth there? The woman was a mind reader. Yes, and. I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing, taking over the Christmas program at the last minute like this. You always were good with children. You don't know how I prayed that you'd get involved in the church again. I couldn't be more pleased. Did I mention that I was on my way to church, she asked pointedly. Not that it would do much good. Reba knew her mother all too well. She was on a fact-finding mission and wouldn't let up until she ferreted out the information she sought. Tell me about Seth. Where did you meet him? How long have you been dating? All of this came in one giant breath. Betty claimed the two of you had only eyes for each other. She seemed to think the fire alarm could have gone off and neither of you would have noticed. Mother, Betty claims it's clear that the two of you were serious. I do wish you'd said something to us before, sweetheart. It's a bit disconcerting, not to say embarrassing, to have a family friend know more about what's going on in my own daughter's life than her own mother. Mom, church. I know, I know, but the worship leader generally starts the service a few minutes past 11 and won't hurt to be a couple of minutes late. We barely had a chance to talk. You so rarely phoned me. Her voice contained just the right amount of, of injury for Reba to experience a twinge of guilt. She did avoid calling her mother, and for this reason. Why don't we meet for lunch one day next week, Reba suggested. She was as susceptible to guilt as the next person, and her mother knew all the right buttons to push. Tomorrow, Joan Maxwell suggested, I can't wait to hear all about Seth. I'll meet you at the agency at 11.30. Don't plan to be back in the office for an hour, either, okay? Having said that, she hung up. Reba held the phone away from her ear and looked at it. No one on earth could drive her crazier faster than her own mother. Joan sounded like a little girl, all excited, eager to hear the details of Reba's romance. She exhaled slowly. It was too soon to be telling her mother anything about her and Seth. They'd only got out on one official date, and her mother had made it sound as though they should meet as soon as possible to discuss the details of their upcoming wedding. A wedding. For years, four years earlier, Reba had worked with her mother to plan a large formal wedding ceremony. She'd taken time and effort with every detail, choosing the invitations and bridesmaid dresses, and everything else that went with the special occasion. The thought of going through all that needless hassle again left a sour taste in her mouth. 
it had been humiliating to call her family and friends and announce that she would be marrying John. That she wouldn't be marrying John after all. She'd escaped shortly afterwards, putting herself up at the beach alone for several days, thinking matters through. Returning the gifts had taken weeks. Although she'd sent out notices that the wedding had been canceled, gifts staggered in for 30 days or longer, as she had to deal with their timely return. Reva wasn't. Reva wanted no part of a large conventional wedding. If she ever married, it would be a small casual gathering, as she had with so much else in her life. She had, yeah, she had with so much else in her life. Mickey had robbed her of the beautiful wedding she'd always dreamed of. Not wanting thoughts of her sister to ruin her day, Reva hurried out the door for church. She smiled as she thought ahead. She was spending the afternoon with Seth and his family. An image of Judd in the Christmas pageant came to mind, and she chuckled. She might have resigned. She might have resigned. He might have resigned himself to playing the role of an angel, but he wanted to make sure everyone knew he was a man angel and not some blue-eyed blonde sissy. Thus, children were so easy to love. What her mother had said about her being good, the children was true. After the broken engagement, she shoved her thought. She shoved the thought of being a mother to the back of her mind. It hurt too much to dwell on the old, on all that might have been. On, yeah, on all that might have been. Vicky had a child. Reva mused at the, and, uh, see, and at the thought of a strong stab of resentment shot through her. Again, she mentally released her anger. Nevertheless, she couldn't keep thinking how unfair it was that Vicky could have a home with a husband and a child when she had neither. The sister who'd betrayed her, the sister who'd stolen away everything Reva treasured, was happy while she, Reva, wallowed in the injustice of it all. The church parking lot was almost full. Reva hurried to the sanctuary just as the congregation stood to sing the opening song. Oh, come all you faithful. Organ music swelled and filled the room. She found a seat and set her purse on the pew and reached for the hymnal. Out of the corner of her eye, she noticed Seth with his two children. And the resentment and sadness had settled over her like a dark cloud lifted unexpectedly. Sunlight filtered into her soul. For whatever reason, she'd been given the second chance of finding happiness. She intended to take hold of the opportunity with both, hand, with both hands and let it take her where it would. Throughout the remainder of the service, her gaze continually strayed to Seth and the children. Every time she glanced in his direction, the warmth returned. During the closing hymn, Reva found Seth's eyes on her. She held his look and smiled, surprised, and smiled, surprised by how shy and uncertain she felt. It was a little thing, this dinner with him and the children. But she really looked forward to any, any time more. They met on the concrete steps outside the church. There's been a small change in plans, Seth announced. Oh? She could see by his look that the revision had settled in. Unbeknownst to me, Mrs. Merkle promised the twins she'd take them to the movies this afternoon. She said she could make us soup and sandwiches before she left if you wanted. I thought I'd, I thought, I'd hope. What I'm trying to say is that we can make it another time if you'd like. So both the housekeeper and twins would be gone. Would you rather I came another time, she asked, referring. He make the decision. His eyes scooted past her. No, I was looking forward to seeing you again. Well, I don't want to wait either. This appeared to surprise him, but a smile soon formed, and he reached for her hand, his fingers tightening around hers. Actually, I make a mean toasted cheese sandwich. Does this mean you'll be doing the cooking? Don't let him, Judd advised, glancing up at his father. We need a lot, a lot better since Mrs. Miracle came. Mrs. Miracle, Mrs. Mrs. Miracle, Rita's gaze went to the plump older woman. The children gathered about her like like chicks set, 
seeking the protection of her mother's wing. I do hope my talking, my, my taking the children won't be too much of an inconvenience, the housekeeper said, looking at Reba. A smile cornered her lips, causing the edges to quiver. I would stay and fix dinner, but I hate to disappoint the twins. They've been extra good all week, and this is the reward. It's no problem, Seth assured her. Reba drove to Seth's house. Mrs. Merkel had the children change their clothes while she set sandwich making on the kitchen counter. There's plenty of leftovers, she called out. Don't worry, we'll see to everything ourselves, Seth told her. The housekeeper's gaze slipped from her employer to Reba. She looked well pleased with herself. Reba glanced around, suddenly uneasy with the thought of being alone with Seth. The attraction she felt for him was strong, and was sure to grow more so once they left once they were alone. Perhaps it was the conversation with her mother earlier excuse me. In the day, the coming Inquisition lunch on Monday would would bring. She couldn't very well play down the relationship when meeting Seth was the best thing that had happened to her in four long years. All things are possible with God, Mrs. Merkel said, out of the blue, looking intently at them both, but no one said they'd be easy. Reba glanced at Seth, wondering if she could explain the comment. He looked as, he looked as puzzled as she. In a matter of minutes, the housekeeper disappeared with both children. The silence that followed engulfed both her and Seth. I can't shake the feeling that she somehow arranged for this in advance, Seth mumbled as he carried two cups of coffee in the living room. She wasn't in the mood for lunch either, yet, and so neither was he. Hoping to give a relaxed impression, Reba removed her shoes and tucked her feet up against the side of the chair. This was the first time she'd been inside Seth's house. She liked it. The style was homey and comfortable. The furniture large and bulky, sturdy like the man himself. Seth, Seth handed Reba the coffee and sat across from her. Across from her, He seemed deeply wrapped in his thoughts. Do you get the feeling we're being purposely thrown together, she asked. He nodded. It seems that way. But Emily didn't know that I invited you to dinner. I forgot to mention it. He had a sheepishly. She's an unusual woman. Seth shook his head and relaxed against the cushion. You're telling me. I can't help but wonder. He let whatever he was going to say fade. Wonder, she prodded. Although she'd met Mrs. Merkel only once, Reba had the same feeling about her. She found the old woman to be something of a puzzle. Perhaps it had something to do with the way Seth's housekeeper regarded her. It, it was as though she had, moved, she had looked straight through her and read her soul. The feeling prompted the honest sensation. She showed up out of the blue one night. Like, uh, like a miracle. I hate to say it, but it's true. The former housekeeper had been gone for some time, and the house was a disaster. Because of all the uncertainty, the kids were in an uproar, and I was at my wit's end. All at once, Mrs. Miracle was there. I didn't even think to check her references or contact the agency until, he hesitated again, as if caught in some warped memory. Seth? The agency hadn't sent her. What? He certainly had her attention now. He certainly had her attention now. When I asked Mrs. Merkel about it, she had a perfectly logical explanation. The Ackerman agency, the only one I'd been working with, contacted another agency. Health. 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 Heaven. Something like that. And they're the ones who sent her. I checked her references and she was given the highest recommendation. I certainly can't find fault with her. What she's done for the children is nothing short of miraculous. He tossed her a chagrin look, then chuckled. There's that word again. You're reassured then. He regarded her blankly and Reba added, with her explanation, 
about the agency? Yes, she was adamant that she told me the name of the agency earlier, but I didn't seem to remember her saying anything. There's been a few other things, minor things, really, that had me wondering. And the thing she says, says? He chuckled. This morning, when the offering was taken to church, she leaned close in and murmured something about not being able to take our money with us. But we can send it on ahead. You're not worried about her, are you? Heavens no. She's wonderful, and as I said, I did check out her references. He raised his coffee cup to his mouth and hesitated, with the mug halfway to his lips. His gaze stretched to the far side of the room. Reba glanced over his shoulder and discovered a twig of mistletoe dangling from the doorway leading into the kitchen. The twins, or possibly Mrs. Merkel, had placed it there before they left for the movie. The air in the room seemed to grow warm as the awareness between them became stronger. Reba moistened her lips, remembering their exchange the night of their first kiss. The kisses had been wonderful, a renewal, a discovery. Reba was confident that Seth had experienced the power of their attraction as strongly as she did. Mrs. Merkel, no, no doubt, he offered, clearing his throat. I don't want you to think, you know, that I brought you over here on the pretext of, well, seducing you. With mistletoe? Yes. He stood and walked over the fireplace, which was the farthest point he could from her, and stood, and then still remained in the same room. I invited you to dinner. And the next thing you know, we're here in the house alone, and there's all these not-so-subtle hints that I'd like to pick up where we left off Friday night. Would you? she asked, lowering her gaze. Yes. His response was sharp and immediate. Maybe I should lie about it, but I don't see much sense in that. It's been it's been years, it's been a lot of years since I was in the dating since I was in the dating scene, and I don't know how to play those games any longer. I don't either. You were married? His voice his eyes held hers. He looked intense. No, she whispered, and then amended. Almost. The engagement was broken. She didn't offer any other information, didn't see the point. He couldn't possibly understand, and she wouldn't, and she wouldn't ask it of him. It does seem a shame to waste that mistletoe, don't you think? He moved toward the kitchen doorway and stood under the Christmas decoration. Smiling, Reba set aside her coffee and walked toward him. They stood facing each other, and for a long moment neither spoke. Then... As if this were what they'd be waiting for, what they both anticipated for the moment Mrs. Miracle had left the twins, they moved into each other's arms. Reba's eyes fluttered closed as Seth gathered her close. She wanted this. She needed this. And sighed audibly when his lips met hers. His kiss left her breathless and clinging. It had been like this for the, the first time, too. Her head had been spinning ever since. He gave her hope, helped her to believe that there could be a future for them. Do you think this is what she was talking about? Reba asked. Seth spread small kisses on the underside of her neck. Who? Mrs. Miracle. She'd said old things were possible with God, only this felt easy, much too easy. Maybe so, said the shirt of her once more, and another deep soul-stirring kiss. Okay, guys, that's it. We're wrapping up for chapter 16. Um, I will be back next Sunday. And we're going to read this through, you know, through the years. And we're going to read this till it's done. And then maybe after that, we'll decide if we want to continue to do this, you know, with just different different books monthly or whatever. But I thank you guys for coming today. And I know you, everyone is busy with holidays. Um, tomorrow at 6.30, we're going to start our regular shows. We're going to have Brett Oldman's going to be on, talking, talking aliens. And it's going to be an interesting week because the schedule is going to be kind of tossed up in that, <clears throat> and that we're going to do a show at 6.30 tomorrow night, like we always do. And then I'm doing a show at midnight because my next guest is, from, is, is living in Innsbruck, Austria right now. 
So uh, we'll be doing that show, but you guys will have access to access to it at the usual time on Tuesday. But it's just going to be kind of a weird week. Christmas Eve, I, I will be here. Excuse me, let me get straight down here. Ah, Christmas Eve, I'll be here. We're going to read the, the poem of the Christmas cat. It's not like the one that's popularly out there that you've always heard. It's, it's a different poem. It's going to explain why cat, why your cat's eyes light up when, when flashlights hit, hit them and stuff. And uh, we're going to read, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus um, opinion piece. And we're also going to read the Polar Express and maybe the night before Christmas. We'll see how things go. But I want to thank you guys for coming today. And as usual, I really appreciate everybody coming. As you can see at the bottom, you know, uh, this is, this is my, my team is non-profit. The show's non-profit. So if you could help us out a little bit with some funding, that would be great. You can donate at paypal.me at California Haas. Or if you have a Venmo, please uh, feel free to donate through the Venmo. Just go into Venmo and, and type in California Haas. You can do it that easy, just like that, that easy. If you like this, share it with five people. If you didn't like it, share it with five people. Please uh, hit the subscribe button if you liked it too. Kind of, you know, we're looking to really build up our subscribers. Again, I want to thank you guys for coming and have a good rest of the weekend. Bye.